This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'm going to try and keep this short, partly because it um, it would make sense for me to be spend as little time as possible just blathering away up here, and also because it would be great to um, have a discussion. So we'll see what happens. Right? Um, um, so I decided I was going to talk about a koan and that and embarrassingly the, the koan was going to be the first case in the blue cliff record <laughs> which is you know it's like everybody says you know the heart sutra is the most um, chanted piece of buddhist literature in the entire mahayana canon right um well, at least in the Soto Zen school, or at least in this Soto Zen school, the first case in the Blue Cliff Record is the most recited case in the entire, you know, um, koan literature. And the reason is that it shows up lots of places, including the um, the um, Shuso ceremony, right? Um, and this this uh, thought came to mind like a number of years ago. I think the last time we did this. Um, my family and I went to see the Nutcracker at Christmas, right? And we were sitting there and listening, and it was really, really great. And and uh, there were all these families around, and they were all watching the Nutcracker. And there's a there's a there's a you know there's a well the structure of the Nutcracker is that they do a bunch of stuff, and then kind of near the end they reprise it in these little brief snippets, right? And there's a there's one dance, and I forget exactly what it's called, but essentially the 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 intention is that it sounds a little bit Middle Eastern, and there's this sort of mysterious dance with it, and so on and so forth. And and uh, and the second time it came around, this incredibly adorable little girl that was sitting directly in front of me goes, "Not again!" <laughs> and uh, it was loud enough so they could hear her all the way down on stage, which is really kind of great, actually. But uh, I, I figured that's what everybody was going to say about that. Um, the first case in the Blue Cliff record. But um, I'll try and make it interesting, right? Like, it's about bodhidharma and the the emperor wu and the emperor wu is unquestionably a historical figure um <clears throat> bodhidharma is, is a lot more questionable right and 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 the uh the, you know even even scholars that think that he actually is a historical figure and that's not not everybody thinks that um completely disagree on when he lived, where he lived, where he came from, how he got to China, um, how he moved around once he was in China, whether he really went up to um, to Shaolin or not, and and so on and so forth, right? And and they and then they also recognize every one of them recognizes that a lot of components of his life story are um, a standard life story are totally mythological. Like that, the most famous part is. Um, Three years after he died, um, 
an advisor to the emperor um, was walking along and he was actually going to Shaolin to meet with the emperor. And um, he bumped into Bodhidharma on the road and Bodhidharma was walking along with a, um, with a stick over his shoulder and hanging from the shoe, the, the stick was a single shoe, right? And <laughs> the guy says, hey, what are you doing? You're dead. And, and he goes, I'm going back to India. And, uh, and, and he goes, don't tell anybody you see me until you've seen me until you get to Shaolin or things will go very badly for you. And then he, he walks off and disappears. And, uh, so the guy gets all the way to Shaolin and he, then he sits down and he tells the emperor what happened. And, um, the emperor says, you're lying. Um, and, and you can't lie to the emperor. So I'm going to have you executed. And, and, but the, um, just to check the, the, the monks went out and they, they essentially dug up Bodhidharma's grave and they found only a single shoe in the grave <laughs> and various people wrote poems about it. But anyway, so that clearly didn't happen. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff that might or might not have happened. And the encounter with the emperor Wu is actually one of them. Right. Um, but none of that matters, right? And because the um, the the story is not about being a true story, whether it's true or not. The story the story is about, um, and this is one of the reasons why that it feels mythological, right? It's such a set piece, right? And so it goes like this, right? So. Um, Bodhidharma kind of storms in because he was that kind of guy and, 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 you know, presumably, um, you know, says and, and does something respectful to the emperor. And then, um, and then the emperor says, okay, so I'm this great Buddhist emperor and I've built all these temples and I've translated all, I've paid to have all this stuff translated and I studied really hard and I really know my, my Dharma front to back. What's the what's the merit in that? And, and Bodhidharma goes, there isn't any merit in that. And 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 the emperor says, okay, fine. So what's the um, what's the essential high the highest? It's it's funny the term, the word he uses actually is the is the is the grading term of it's the term about grading on the civil service exams in China. So what's like what's the highest grade you can get on <laughs> on the on the holy truths, right? And uh um and Bodhidharma says empty, not holy. Um or maybe even no it's I was gonna say unholy, but no it's not unholy. It's sort of not holy. And um Interestingly, that's almost the correct answer. <laughs> the the you know as if you if you poke around and you 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 look for the highest meaning of the holy truths, generally speaking, at least in the Mahayana canon, it's emptiness, right? So he's not Bodhidharma is not being particularly deceptive about that. But then the emperor, um, who it seems like he might be a little vexed, says something like, "Well, who's standing before me now?" And my guess is that something like. Who the hell are you, right? And Buddy just don't know, and then he walks out, <laughs> and uh, 
supposedly crosses the Yangtze River and and ends up in the Kingdom of Wei, where he um, sits and stares at a wall for nine years. Um, and there's some there's some stuff that happens after that. But if you if you look at the at at the set piece there, it's clear what's going on. Like. Um, um the emperor wu represents represents human effort and and um conventional understanding right so he's he's paid to have a whole bunch of conventional understanding delivered to him and his monastic communities and he's done a lot of reading and he really he actually knows what the highest meaning of the holy truths are too because he probably he studied it carefully enough so that you got a sense of it right so um and he and he, he's he's not an unvirtuous guy he's engaged in all this um inc incredibly virtuous helpful effort and he's and he was you know there's a there's a little tendency on the part of people who read and study this koan to kind of be dismissive of the emperor wu but that that would be a mistake he's actually kind of awesome right and um and so if that's true, if he represents conventional understanding, um, you, you know, kind of the the sort of standard def definition of human right effort, um, even even in the human right effort in the presence of a, of a kind of privilege that allowed him to have a pretty broad scope, right? Um, what does Bodhidharma represent, right? Bodhidharma represents the ungraspable and the unknowable, right? And so the, and here the, you have these two people that are, you know, the mouthpiece for conventional understanding and the ungraspable standing up and having an exchange, right? Does that sound like mythology? Yeah, maybe, <laughs> But in any case, um, that's what it's about. And, and it's, and it's intentionally about that. And, and it's not like it's the only case in, the literature that has that flavor. Like if you look just a few cases later in the in the Blue Cliff Record, there's this story of um what is it, Dushan. And you know, he goes to he he's a he's a famous Buddhist scholar and an expert in the Diamond Sutra. And he he uh he hears about the Southern school and he's incensed and he's like, he, he, so he straps on his straw sandals and he hold, throws the scrolls that have his commentaries on the Diamond Sutra in, in a backpack and he storms off to the South and somewhere way down South, he meets this, um, he, he found, finds a roadside tea shop and he goes in and he said, I need some tea and cookies for refreshment. And uh, the tea lady is like, Hey, what's that in your backpack? And he goes, I'm a famous Buddhist scholar. These are my commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. And she goes, oh, well, Diamond Sutra says, um, you know, um, present mind is ungraspable, past mind is ungraspable, future mind is ungraspable. What exactly are you trying to refresh? If you can answer me, I'll give you some tea and cookies. Otherwise, get the hell out of my shop. And, and he's like, Wah! and so... Um, she throws him out. And then he ends up going to see this guy, uh, Lung Tan, which means, I think, Dragon Pond. And he storms in and says, you know, 
I'm in I'm here, but I don't see any dragon and I don't see any pond. And they they kind of go around and after a while, um, they have this exchange, um, which maybe I'll describe in a bit. And um and he has a moment of realization, right? And and so he gets up in the morning, and this is not the only person that's ever done this in the history of of uh the Zen Koan literature, and he burns all his commentaries on the Diamond Sutra and and walks off to um to you know find a teacher or something like that and that's you know that's that story and then there's there's also um i think it's um Chang Yun and um he was studying with Kuishan i think and and just he also was a scholar and he never kind of got it and he had trouble um he, he was really stalled in his practice and he got more and more miserable and finally left and he went and became the maintenance guy on a on a uh, memorial shrine and and the story is one day he uh he kicks up a um kicks up a stone with a with his broom and it hits a piece of bamboo and it makes this sort of noise and uh and he wakes up and he he immediately goes and puts on his robe and bows in the direction of his teacher way off there mount question right and uh and he writes this poem that says something like oh, i'm so grateful if you'd explained it to me i would never have gotten it <laughs> so it's it's a persistent theme not what that case is in the is like I think case five in the uh, in the Mumon Khan, right? Um, the the standing up conventional understanding and cognition against um, the ungraspable and realization, right? Um, and I have to say it's tempting to conclude from those cases that the the compilers of the Cohen literature were sort of deprecating conventional cognition but and understanding but I think that's completely untrue right like if you look at if you look at the Buddhist philosophical system and all the things that people say in, in, in the koans and, um, and the commentaries and everything else, there's a lot of conventional understanding involved. And it's, they're full of the, the Buddhist texts of the day. And, you know, the Mahayana texts that they were all reading are, are full of dualistic schemas and, um, and, and, you know, uh programs for practice and all the rest of that sort of thing they're really they're they're loaded with conventional knowledge and understanding right? um and fundamentally as far as i can tell nobody has a problem with that the it's more like how many people here went to hampshire college any of you i, I know catherine did but i don't think she's here <laughs> So you know what you know what the uh, um, motto of Hampshire College is, right? It's uh, it's non satisfire, which means to know is not enough, right? And I, I think it's more like to know is not enough, right? Like 
understanding in the conventional sense and realization are not the same thing, right? And 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 if you if you focus on conventional understanding, it actually ends up being a distraction from the practice that you need to engage in to um, to have a more fully yeah more comprehensive and 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 full realization of what it actually is to be human right that's kind of what it comes down to and so um the the interesting thing about conventional understanding and and realization is even though they're not the same they're definitely complementary right and if you look at um if you look at the at the comments both on these cons that I was just talking about and you know pretty much everywhere else they basically say and Dogen says this too right he says cease from practice based on intellectual understanding yeah exactly but um that's not the same as saying abandon intellectual understanding it's more like if you practice diligently the relationship between intellectual or conventional understanding and um, and realization becomes clear, and and the the commentators also say, and if you don't do that, you'll never get it in a million years. That's kind of what they say, right? The realization is the is a is contact with the the ungraspable nature of of reality and it, which which means fundamentally when he says who are you don't know what he's saying is i really don't know right <laughs> you know? um and and my experience with that is that it arises in a in a bunch of different ways and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in terms of how it arises out of practice but 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 fundamentally it's the it's the it's the fruit of practice th that there's been a, there's a lot of talk and a lot of program programmatic stuff about how it happens in the context of 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 Buddhist practice. There, you know, there's programs for koan study that are designed to produce that that insight that awakening right to the ungraspable nature of reality and the the way in which emptiness and that ungraspable nature can actually reach into your body and grab your attention right um uh, so it comes it comes from experience aided by practice let's put it that way does that make sense or what do you think experience the so the last word i didn't pick that of, of experience um, supported by practice, actually not not just supported by practice, becomes it comes from the experience of practice. Right? Um, yeah. The um, uh, you know a model and not the only model for for a practice that that can give rise to that experience and that realization right is zazen obviously that's what we're all doing here right which is great um the 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 important parts of that have to do with 
um, learning to hold your um, your conventional understanding sufficiently lightly so that it doesn't um, it, it doesn't stand in the way of development in your practice, right? And that's that's essentially the um, that's why Dogen says cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, right? Is that that um, if you if you if you study the the self, if you practice in this particular way that involves kind of unloaded attention to the um, to the process and arising of the self, then naturally something else starts to happen after a while. If you if you if you kind of mess with it by um, trying to control it, trying to drive it with your expectations by by making judgments about your practice one way or another, et cetera, et cetera, it's much more difficult. And that, you know, obviously is is what um, uh, Suzuki Roshi is saying in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, among other places, right? And also what Dogen says, right? The, um, and, and so, you know, it's interesting that the, that the, you know, the, the fly leaf basically in, in, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind says something like, in, in the beginner's mind, there are lots of possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are a few possibilities, right? Um, that sounds really good. It's actually not true at all. <laughs> like if you've ever if you ever talk to a real expert about something, um, chances are mostly what they'll tell you is what they don't know. Which is, or, or if they're um, if they're a real expert, because because they've they've come up against the boundaries of their conventional understanding in the process of becoming experts. And that's a that's a marvelous thing. But as a as a rubric, it's not bad, right? So to to and 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 that's kind of the essence of zazen practice is that it it pushes you up against the boundaries of your conventional understanding and the boundaries of of your capacity to make the right kind of effort, make an unloaded wholehearted effort to to be present and to allow things to be just as they are right um and 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 so the, i think pretty much for all of us it's certainly for me but i, I my my experience when talking with people is that pretty much everyone has this has this has a, a bunch of stories to tell about the frustration of being pushed up against the uh, the limits of your physical capacity of your um, your conventional understanding of your you know your ability to um, uh, to 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 make an effort that's not either you know pushing too hard or not pushing hard enough and all of that stuff all of the all of that whole complex of issues around practice um brings us up to this point of frustration and difficulty like over and over and over again and and what it's offering in that moment is a, a, is an invitation to let go and 
with the first 10,000 times we get that invitation, or at least easily the first 10,000 times I got that invitation, um, I didn't, I didn't take it. It, I, it slipped by so quickly that I didn't even notice it, but eventually maybe you take the invitation, right? Um, and then something else happens, right? Then there's a, there's a, um, there can be a broadening of the sense of what it actually means to be human. There's this rising up and sort of the, this, this sort of broad, receptive, continuous attention that we always carry with us, but is obscured by our conventional thinking, rises up and kind of, at least for a little while, takes its natural place in our awareness, right? Um, and so what helps with that, right? What, what are some examples of, of how that works? Well, in the, in the case of, um, of, you know, Dishan, right, the, the exchange he had with Luntan at, the, um, at, at, the key, at this critical moment. So, um, uh, he, you know, they talked deep into the night and it was kind of dark. And so uh, as, he's, as he's leaving, um, uh, Lungtan says, hey, here, let me give you a lantern. And, and he, um, he lights up the lantern and he hands it to Dushan. And just as, as Dushan is grasping it, um, he blows it out. And it's all of a sudden, it's really dark. <laughs> and, uh, and that was the moment in which um, uh, Dushan was startled sufficiently out of his skin to have a moment that went beyond conventional understanding um, and to recognize it as well, because that's the other thing is you can have it and not recognize it, right? Um, and um, so surprise is good, right? Interestingly, another thing that helps with that is if you if you really attend carefully, sufficiently carefully to the the you know the process of conventional um emotionally tagged cognition in the course of your everyday life do you you pay it's close enough attention to it to realize what a burden it is um and to to actually feel the burden of it right and i, I for me this is true but also i've talked to a number of people who at one point or another they're just like oh wow this is really heavy i can put it down which is lovely um, sometimes the, just the simple yoga of sitting, it provides an opening, just the, 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 you know, deep unbreakable connection with the body and with the, um, the intimate details of sitting um, is, is sufficient, right? And then lastly, and oddly, almost paradoxically, sometimes it's our ideas, right? So, which is amazing, right? So you, the, it's the, the, it turns out that, um, that the, 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 your entire life in practice 
takes place in this tangle in between conventional cognition and this other mode of being that that um, isn't as concerned with the self, um, grasping an aversion, the agendas of the self, and so on and so forth, and is is more directly connected to the you know interdependent co-arising of all being, right? And we carry both of those around in our body, and they they're tangled together inextricably, right? They information from this side impacts information from this side and the other other way around. And so an obvious example of that is um well here here's one from from my practice. So for years I studied the literature and there was this whole thing about every you know this this mind or everyday mind is buddha right and i read it and i read it and i read it and i was like yeah that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah that makes sense and then one moment one time um in the middle of sitting a sushin all of a sudden it became clear exactly what it means right and it's not like i the it, my conventional understanding of it shifted it was that my experience of it shifted right and that that experience was both aided by my holding of that idea and the and the experience changed the nature of the idea right amazing so they're 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 actively entangled and interacting all the time right and um and what that means is that realization is just the practice of living in and and navigating skillfully in that tangle that's it right so that's the highest meaning of the holy truths just in case you wonder um so any um oh and i brought a poem i wrote this poem to go with this case once a little while ago and and uh and i thought i'd read it so it goes like this an encounter at the bakery the croissants are babbling in an unknown tongue that up till now everyone had assumed was French. The dough, rising on a backbench, shouts to no one in particular, I've been up since 3 a.m. working my fingers to the bone. Does that mean nothing to you? And the sugar shouts back, nothing. The white aproned baker smiles and asks the customer who's just wandered in, may I help you? To which he replies, do you know who I am? His clothes are frayed and soiled with long travel, his beard and hair shockingly red. So. Well, great. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.